0: Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, New Ideas and Analysis, with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi, Cameron, good to talk with you again.
1: Yeah, great to be back and having another chat, Jonathan.
0: And you had a viral tweet in the last few days, uh, something that caught everyone's attention and uh, took off. In the Twitter sphere,
1: that's right. That's the name of the game in in Twitterland. Even with Elon Musk, it's it's get the viral tweet. But I, I think this is, um, you know, uh, its popularity was very emblematic of many other things that are going on at the moment. So let me read it out. Mm-hmm. It says, "Prediction: In ten years, it will be hard to find anyone who will admit to supporting COVID lockdowns, school closures, masks, and vaccine passports." So that was that was the tweet uh obviously it hit um some big accounts jay Bhattacharya, the uh the harvard epidemiologist he shared it and and now it's just still circulating mm-hmm. around like so a virus maybe they should have a twitter lockdown to stop it in its tracks <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh, the reason i wrote that um is because on monday night i attended a an event called brisbane dialogues which is like a very good q a it's a it's like a panel discussion invite only experts come in a room and they discuss a topic where they they very much disagree but it's well moderated and and you know the the culture in the audience is we're having an open mind and we're actually trying to learn from each other here so it's a it's a great event so if you you're in brisbane google brisbane dialogues and what what happened on monday was that um There was a panel of uh, Gigi Foster, who is an economist from the University of New South Wales, who was on Q&A, the ABC TV program, uh, during COVID and was slammed as a granny killer for suggesting there were trade-offs to lockdowns and that having a functioning society and economy has health benefits. She's absolutely slammed. She's had more than a year and a half of, you know, death threats and, and angry emails. She was on the panel with um, Paul Griffin, who's a Queensland um, uh, doctor who's who's been in the press a lot talk, you know, following the trend and talking up COVID. But what happened at that event was essentially the theme was how do we deal with the next pandemic? And uh, Paul, Gigi and the other panellists all sort of ended up saying we shouldn't lock down again we shouldn't have closed schools we shouldn't have made everyone do masks we shouldn't have made vaccines compulsory um you know only 12 months ago they were you know telling the media every day oh you know we can't open up till we've got 90% vaccinated you know put them in jail if they're not going to get vaccinated and here we are a year later and all of a sudden oh whoopsie we overreached we were trying to do the right thing so there's this great unwinding of COVID panic and this, like, wave of um, reality sort of washing over the debate. I'm not sure if you've noticed it.
0: Hmm. Not not uh, really, because I hear only Norman Swan on the ABC.
1: Yeah, he's an interesting one, isn't he? What's, what's he been saying lately?
0: Well, he does repeat quite often that this is not benign this is not the flu, this is very serious. It's, it's, a, it's a shame that governments aren't giving the guidance that's required on people to wear M95 masks. It's a shame that um, we're not, I, I think he means that the government should do like regulations on indoor ventilation. I just, I don't know. He keeps on saying we're not doing anything on ventilation. I don't know what he means. Um, forcing people to keep doors and windows open. I mean, I'm sure it's a good idea. I, I always ask people to do that, but I don't know what he specifically means. Uh, and he talks a lot about um, that we did the right thing during the pandemic and the results are there that show it. And he specifically said that the life expectancy figures have, we, Australia has gone up in the international rankings because a dent has been made in the life expectancy figures for so many other countries who had uh, more deaths in their middle-aged and younger population um, from covid um and so they've sort of, you know, it's made a dent in their uh, uh, life expectancy averages. So, um, yeah, that's... that's yeah, well,
1: look, that's that's interesting because um, I think we talked about last time the, the, the puzzling excess deaths in Australia um, happening in 2022, which we didn't really have in 2021. Um, now, to claim that Australia's, you know, life expectancy is growing is interesting because we only have data for um up until 2021 right so we actually have um average data for the 2020 2021 years and we don't have any data for the last 12 months and what's interesting in australia is we had a very um we had a very uh severe flu season in 2019 right so if you actually look at the ABS life expectancy data, you'll see that 27 to 19, um, that two year average period, we really didn't get any gains. Females, essentially, no gains in life expectancy in those two years. And so he's looking at this two year period that has come after a downturn, right? So obviously, you know, life expectancy curves over time they bounce up and down a little depending if it's a bad flu season or a cold winter or whatever it is and so he's actually a little bit cherry-picking the the baseline comparison by saying look you know we've gone up which is from the two-year average um you know 2018 to 2020 to now 2019 to 2021 but also ignoring that 2022 is going to go down as well so I suspect if we look back on this in a couple of years, it's going to be a much smoother curve and his claim might not uh, really make a lot of sense.
0: I don't know if he was talking about the curve, though. It was more how we are in re- relative to the other countries in the rankings.
1: Yeah, so that's the thing, right? The 2019 flu season was more of a South Asian, <laughs> Australian Pacific uh, phenomenon, rather than a Northern European phenomenon. So, for example, we go down and they go up, right? In 2019, then they go down in 2020, 2021, and we go up. Obviously, we also go up in the rankings, but that's just because um, the variation is offset Mm -hmm. by one year. So, I suspect um, that over time, that will smooth out a lot, and I also suspect that some of that is just more harsh lockdowns and disruption in other, like, it's not like Australia was alone in locking down. And in fact, outside of Victoria, it was relatively mild compared to a lot of places. So yes, yes. there's also that that sort of issue to deal with. But the fact that it's being used to, to continue to justify sort of panic and it's a severe problem today sort of flies in the face to me of what's generally happening, which is, You know, people admitting that we overstepped the mark. We have, I don't know if you've read in The Atlantic, Emily Oster, an economist, she said, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. Let's focus on the future and fix the problems we need to solve, which is essentially saying, yeah, you were right. We didn't need to panic and close schools and mask kids and do all this stuff. That's what's, the you know, this unwinding of panic that's happening. So I I do find it surprising that Norman Swan is still holding firm mm. amongst all this
0: and on another abc personality um josh seps who's um well he's a tv personality and an abc personality and he has his own podcast so on his podcast which i think is called uncomfortable conversations he had a monologue where he uh, sort of defended a, a his position on vaccine saying that he was wrong for the right reasons, that that was basically the summary of the podcast. Now I I listened to it carefully and I have a lot of respect for the position of being wrong for the right reasons because he followed the science and he didn't just decide that it felt right. That's all good. But I think there is a problem where he has um, just taken a very idealized and not evidence-based, to use that phrase, view of how science works, given all we know about vested interests in pharmaceutical companies and how they, for example, with Tamiflu, misrepresented the effectiveness of their drug. And then a few months down the track after governments had spent billions on it, we find out it's no better than Panadol. So knowing how the pharmaceutical companies get fined for this kind of misconduct and have a track record of bending the rules and bending truth mm. to suit themselves and of how universities and research institutes and government health institutes operate and often are very inflexible and slow to take on evidence and are built on egocentric reputationalism and um, mm-hmm. and, and, ve- and their own vested interests, et cetera, et cetera. So knowing all that, he's kind of bracketed that off and going, no, I took the science and I followed it and therefore I was wrong for the right reasons about vaccines. Um, and if I, he said, if I went back in time and we presented with the evidence, I would have done the same thing and I would have, you know, absolutely not change anything I said. Um, so, um, yeah, I... I mean-
1: wow. Which is sort of, I, I, you know, I guess the point of that tweet at the beginning, he's already sort of backed down from his views, but he's saying, if it happened again, I'd still do it. And I do wonder how much those views... Uh, will change as more and more people realise that a lot of what we did was just panicked and didn't make sense. So Emily Oster's saying, you know, she was masking on hikes, masking her four-year-old son outdoors in the park and all this sort of stuff and saying, well, we just didn't know, right? Um, You know, so I'd do it all again. But, you know, we did know. I think that's a bit of a cop-out, right? Because you had top scientists, uh, you know, writing the Great Barrington Declaration, John Ioannidis saying, you know, we know this stuff. I've studied pandemics my whole career. The main thing you do is you don't panic. Try and keep social life and the economy functioning as normal as possible so that you can have people doing their normal jobs and, you know, delivering hospital supplies, uh, building new hospitals. You know, if you close people down, you can't actually do those things we take for granted that that add value to our lives. So we could have known it and I think uh, I'll predict I'll make another prediction. I'll predict that um, his views will change even further in the coming years um, and that he his view might change. For example, um, in this panel on Monday night that I saw the Brisbane dialogues, everyone agreed that maybe we should have a a binding rule that it's impossible to close state borders again Mm -hmm. maybe we should tie our hands today so that if we panic again about something it will just be administratively and politically too difficult to succumb to the panic and do things we know had zero value and and a lot of harm So this was the, this is how far views have changed from people who were, you know, wear an N95 mask to the park, stay at home, you know, uh, keep kids out of school, make people, you know, force people to get vaccines or fire them. These are people who are really caught up now in that time, who now see that the panic was a real thing, maybe we should tie our hands a little so that we can't panic next time so mm-hmm. i i predict more of this unwinding of those strong views and more uptake of hmm let's never do a lot of that stuff again even if we feel panicked and even if we feel like we're following the science and responding to um information as it comes like josh sips still mm-hmm. thinks he does
0: mm-hmm. mm. um another unwinding to for segue. For a great segue, um, <laughs> another unwinding is, um, well, the crypto world's unwinding, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So, you've obviously heard about this FTX crypto exchange.
0: You couldn't make uh, up this guy's name as well, which is, you know, Sam Bankman Freed or bank run Fraud, as they're saying.
1: Um, isn't it amazing? Uh, so so the story basically here, look I'm I'm no expert with what he does because I stopped following crypto very early on. Once I'd sort of dug in and realized there's nothing material there that fundamentally it was a scam from the start. It was sort of,, um, you know, it, it served a f- it, it, it ostensibly served a, one function trading. You know, currency online securely, but at the end of the day, it didn't do what it said it did very well. Like it, it was doing, it was doing the wrong thing well, <laughs> and so, so I was very skeptical from the start. But this guy um, convinced so many people, and so many people from, you know, respectable companies to give him their money to buy crypto and then he essentially just spent all the money that people gave him because um, he he swapped crypto, gave them crypto for cash and he just went and spent their money for, for years and at mm. the same time was donating to politics. He was nurturing this reputation. Um, it's like a Bernie Madoff. It's like if Bernie Madoff was like, uh, you know, mm. uh, a political player and uh, uh had a sort of um a philanthropic fund it would have that, that's essentially the story but yeah. anyway i predict that it's going to lead to much more unwinding of of crypto and a lot of this oh we were wrong about crypto yeah we didn't know at the time we couldn't have known better <laughs> <laughs> same same with covid um mm-hmm. that, that's my impression what's your impression
0: I don't, I don't have an impression apart from what I what I uh, I enjoy. I enjoy a lot of the comedic takes on this. Well, no, I actually I enjoy the analysis of certain podcasts that I listen to like Chapo Trap House and um True anon, this is like sort of fringe leftist podcast in the US where they just go into a bit of his family background and just the personal connections between all these people in in, in the Democratic Party and this guy and um and his parents and just you realise that just. How kind of nepotistic the whole system is. Um, everyone is someone's kid. They all think they're successful because of their genius, but like it's so obvious that it's so it's all about the connections that they had.
1: Yeah, but this I mean this scam is is so astronomically um, large. They had a thirty two billion dollar valuation, right? this is this is massive. Um, and I I think it's interesting, right? Because um a lot of the crypto, uh, hype was driven by this libertarian impulse, right? Mm-hmm. That I don't want to be tracked online. I want to be able to trade securely and use this special invisible money, um, which is sort of funny because the whole point of Bitcoin is to record every transaction. The only secure thing is not knowing whose identity is controls which account, whereas in finance identifying account holders, like the real identity of account holders is like the main job of regulated finance. Yep. So I find it interesting that it was driven by this libertarian, we're smarter than everyone impulse. And yet now I suspect, you know, the great unwinding will be that everyone wants it regulated some more. <laughs> everyone wants, you know, I don't want to be tricked into these financial schemes anymore. I want I want regulators to step up <laughs> and do their job. Mm. Uh, so I suspect we'll, we'll see the next phase of crypto being where were regulators why didn't you stop us doing silly things uh despite the fact that everyone was like i'm a libertarian you know i'm going to uh, avoid the regulators and you know it's too many rules in finance mm. so it's a it's a puzzling trend to me and i again i'll be interested in how many people uh change their tune in the next 5 or 10 years about You know, I was never that into crypto. I just thought it was a good way to diversify because you never know with these things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those people are going to be the ones whose Twitter was like, if you're not getting into crypto, you don't know anything about the future, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) But all of a sudden, they'll soften their stance and uh, and you'll find that, you know, know, Twitter is probably 50% crypto shills these days, and and in ten years, you look back and it won't you you won't find any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but is is my prediction there?
0: Okay. <laughs> well, since we have a bit of time, uh, I thought I would just ask you about a sort of um, classic economics problem. You're saying that you think our incomes are not going up, but our, we're spending like crazy, and this is a bit of a puzzle. Am I characterising that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, the puzzle that's, um, I think, a lot of economic analysis online these days is that, not that incomes aren't going up, but the wage price index is the, it's like it's like the consumer price index, but it measures what people earn per hour of work at different jobs. And the wage price index has grown um, 3% this year and, and hardly at all last year, right? Uh, it was less than 2% last year. So, you've got this wages essentially hardly growing at all, but retail spending booming, um, really a lot of economic indicators uh, the last 12 months absolutely smashing in at the same time as um, wages are not really moving. So, the retail spending indicator, um, household spending increased 28% through the year, right? Mm, yeah. Wages increase three percent. So, what gives? Why do we have you know mm. this huge spending boom? And is we have savings? this other puzzle: consumer consumer confidence is down, but everyone's out having dinner parties at restaurants that are packed, complaining <laughs> about the economy, right, while they're spending. Uh-huh. So, what is it? And the answer is, it's um, it's non-wage income, right? So we forget that wages, well, it's two parts. Wages are only about 40% of household income, right? And the wage price index doesn't measure how much income people are earning from wages. It measures how much the price of the wage of the same job changes over time. So what you see is that um, people are actually earning 7% more in wages, not 3%. So, the average job went up 3%, but people change jobs. So, people are on average working higher level jobs now and hence earning more wages. They're also working more, like unemployment rate's gone down, so there's more people working. So, actually, the income from wages has gone up 7%. But what's more interesting is the other 60% of household income, right? We've got profits from companies, right? Corporate profits, they are the incomes of the shareholders, right? And when they get that paid that dividend, they go and spend it, right? And they are up twenty nine percent in the year, right? Profits, at, the incomes to households in the form of profits are up twenty nine percent over the year, and the income from what's called gross mixed income, which is like people who work for themselves, contractors, plumbers, those type of people, where it's not they don't pay themselves a wage, but they essentially work for themselves. They're up 13.5%. So, what we're actually seeing, we're forgetting that wages, yeah, they they that's what people earn and the price of wages goes up or down. We're forgetting that in the macro economy, someone's spending is someone else's income. Hmm. And so, we've got this boom in spending and we're like, how are we doing it? Well, because the boom in spending is someone else's income that's how they can sustain it it's a it's a macro economy and we also injected a lot of um money into people's bank accounts in COVID. you know the government literally armed armed all the private sector with funds to spend so that resolves a lot of these puzzles of like uh in the rental market people are saying how can rents go up in this area by this much when incomes are only going up three percent and you have to stop and say, actually, wage the, the wage price index is going up three percent, but the incomes of households, well, the wage income's going up seven percent, plus there's this other 60% of incomes, and they're going up by much, much more. And that's how you're getting this massive boom in spending uh that we're getting at the moment. And of course, I, I suspect in the next in next year we'll see a bit of an unwinding of of those. Uh, that high spending as well as high interest rates and monetary policy starts to bite. But that's just a puzzle I, I've been thinking about lately because those price indexes came out and a lot of people said, oh, no, no one can afford anything. And mm-hmm. I'm like, but that's not that's not income. So you're missing the point.
0: <laughs> but uh, surely a very small fraction of the society actually gets any income from dividends, from shares. I'm more willing to think, oh, yeah, people who are self-employed, like contractors like that that is a significant yeah. impact
1: so, yeah the distribution is very different of who gets the incomes from profits but it's actually quite broad like all the retirees self funded you know they get they get higher dividends when they own bhp shares and and profits on mining go up right so they yes there's a lot of uh, dis- the, the issue is distributional but um you know i think we should still need to be aware that it's it's probably broader than what some people have in mind this distribution of profits in the economy you know it's not just gina reinhart and clive palmer and whoever um it it is a little you know a little bit broader than that and if you're talking you know tradies and their incomes 13 and a half percent extra income and they're not included in this wage price index at all right um so that's another a um, lot of spending and of course when these guys uh who are making the ex- extra corporate profits go and renovate their house and buy a new car that that again circulates and creates income again for others so yes you're right there's a distributional issue at play but uh i think that's probably what's missing is that you can't just say households can't afford things because of the wage price you got to consider all the households and all
0: the different sources of income Great note on which to end. Look forward to another stimulating chat next time.
1: Yeah, great to talk, Jonathan. See ya.